thank you for joining us today. As we get started here, I uh, have a pretty statement to read. Uh, Berkeley, Law, uh, Berkeley Law has a history of encouraging dialogue and discussion on issues that affect all members of society. Uh, today there are some deep divisions in our communities. There's a need for civil discourse to address these issues and to find solutions. We ask that everyone here today help to foster that discussion. Please silence your cell phones and refrain from any action that disrupts the program. I'm sure we all agree that we need more discussion, not less, and this is a forum for discussion. In that vein, there will be a question and answer period uh, after the panelists have given their statements where all questions and expressions of opinion will be welcome uh, to be shared. With that said, good afternoon and welcome to Berkeley Law. My name is Kevin Walker. I'm a third-year law student here at Berkeley. I'll be moderating today's discussion. This event is sponsored by the Federal Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Federal Society is a nonpartisan organization that is dedicated to fostering balanced and open debate about principles of freedom and federalism. Today's program is on community policing, officer safety, and the current challenges facing law enforcement. I'm honored to introduce our panel of experts. Kenton Rainey is chief of the Bar Police Department. His 32 years of law enforcement experience have demonstrated his deep commitment to community policing, advocacy for the mentally ill and domestic violence victims, and to achieving police reform through higher education and training. In addition to his BA in criminal justice and MA in organizational leadership, Chief Rainey has earned leadership certificates from UCLA, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and the Police Executive Research Forum. Scott Erickson is a writer, policy analyst, and law enforcement professional with over 18 years of experience in police work. Mr. Erickson holds a Master of Science degree in Criminal Justice Studies. In 2015, Mr. Erickson founded Americans in Support of Law Enforcement, a nonprofit organization dedicated to addressing issues affecting the law enforcement community. He has written on issues of national security, including foreign terrorist organizations, law enforcement, and missile defense, and is a frequent guest commentator on television and radio programs. Daryl Jackson has over 30 years of experience in law enforcement. He currently serves as an investigator with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, assigned to their Special Prosecutions Unit. Inspector Jackson is tasked with investigating allegations of public corruption and law enforcement misconduct, and is an expert on officer-involved shooting investigations. Inspector Jackson received an MA in Leadership and a Bachelor's in Criminal Justice Management from St. Mary's College. Perry Stern is Managing Principal of Reigns Lucia Stern, a statewide California law firm with an emphasis on representing peace officers. Mr. Stern's practice focuses on civil litigation and criminal defense. He regularly represents peace officers in internal investigations, administrative hearings, and other proceedings. Prior to becoming an attorney, Mr. Stern was a police officer with the City of Berkeley and was a member of the Berkeley Police Association's Board of Directors. Mr. Stern earned his BA here at UC Berkeley and earned his law degree from the University of San Francisco. Heather McDonald is a Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of The War on Cops. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, and other publications. A non-practicing lawyer, Ms. McDonald clerked for the Honorable Stephen Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and was an attorney advisor in the Office of the General Counsel of the Environmental Protection Agency and volunteer with the Natural Resources Defense Council. She has testified before numerous U.S. House and Senate committees. A frequent television and radio commentator, Ms. McDonald holds a BA from Yale University, an MA from Cambridge, and JD from Stanford Law. Over the past two years, we've seen a deterioration in the public's trust of law enforcement. Over the same period, we've seen a dramatic rise in the number of ambush attacks on officers, with 14 officers killed in ambushes so far this year, compared to three last year. 
The crisis in police-community relations signals a need for dialogue, and that's what brings us here today. To begin our conversation, I would like to invite each of the panelists to share their opening remarks on this subject. Chief Brainy, we'll begin with you. Good afternoon, and thank you, Kevin. And I'd like to thank the Federalist Society for inviting me to participate in this panel. Um, but my esteemed uh, colleagues on this uh, very, very timely uh, subject. I must admit that I was somewhat ignorant to what the Federalist Society was, and had to correspond with Kevin and go on the website and try to find out more information uh, about the group. Uh, appreciate this opportunity to uh, dialogue about this. Uh, I have a very unique perspective. I've been 37 years of law enforcement working in six different agencies in three different states. Uh, what is the current state of officer safety and community policing and is there a war on cops? And to really get into that, you know, for me, I have to ask myself, what's the role of police in society, especially a free and democratic society. And police, especially the uniform police, are the most visible form of presence of our government, whether at the local, state, or federal level. We're considered part of the executive branch of government, and we're in charge with enforcing our laws of our country. You know, each individual law enforcement officer that is an oath to support, defend, and protect our constitutional way of life. To this end, a big debate is going on right now in the law enforcement uh, profession amongst my colleagues at the chief executive level, um, asking ourselves, that, does that oath mean that we are warriors or guardians? And from a warrior standpoint, more aggressive, um, proactive, so to speak. And the guardian is one of the protector, as you say, the shepherd. And if there's a current war on cops, the following questions need to be asked. Who's at war with the cops? When did the war start? Why are we fighting? Where is this war being waged? And what does either side need to do to prevail? Every law enforcement officer, uh, as they go through their initial basic training, learns about Sir Robert Peel, who has the foundation of America, established the foundation of American policing. And one of Peel's great quotes that we all memorize is, the people are the police, and the police are the people. And the police are only ones paid to do uh, the job of serving and protecting full time. But in essence, it's all of our responsibility to guarantee our constitutional way of life. In keeping with Peel's basic principles, community policing means working in partnership uh, with all the community stakeholders in order to identify and solve issues the mutual the crime and social disorder that are plaguing uh, a particular community. And this can only be shared, this can only be accomplished by sharing power. And most law enforcement agencies, um, where we feel that community policing 
is because we lack an understanding, respect, and acceptance of the diversity of all the different groups that we're supposed to serve and protect. So if there's a war, I submit that we're at war with ourselves because the people are the police and the police are the people. And there's some dates that I want you guys to memorize and hopefully we can get into this later. March 5th, 1770, April 12th, 1861, April 19th, 1995. And to date, incidents that occurred that Kevin talked about in Dallas and Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. When the people don't trust the police and they don't see our authority, see us as being legitimate, that's why you have this breakdown. Uh, and they don't see that we are administering, uh, exercising procedural justice and constitutional policing is when they expect and they want their officers to engage in fair, respectful treatment. The public is more likely to view their authority as legitimate. So if we're going to be safe going forward, as a society, not just the police, all of us. Policing must be done in a manner that's lawful and constitutional, but also in a manner that maintains the consent of the people, all the people. Constitutional policing is both foundational and aspirational for the police. The Constitution, in other words, provides a basic legal framework which we all operate, and if we don't do this, again, none of us will be safe. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. I appreciate the invitation. And I think this is obviously an important and timely topic to discuss. You know, a few years prior to Ferguson, I submit to you the most dominant, relevant issue as it related to law enforcement within the public discourse was over the militarization of law enforcement. And I spent countless hours at numerous schools throughout the nation, including here at Berkeley last year, I believe it was, discussing the militarization of law enforcement. And many critics then, and still today, felt that uh, police officers were using tactics, weaponry, and engaging in training that was more suited for the battlefield than for domestic communities. Um, I tried to add a little context, a little perspective to that, to that topic, and, and discuss the evolution of policing over the past few generations, and how officers today no longer simply have to be prepared to deal with traditional street-level crime like robberies, burglaries, thefts, assaults, and what have you. But in addition, officers today have to be prepared to be on the front lines of an act of terror or have to respond to a multi-casual or mass casualty active shooter situation like we saw in Orlando or San Bernardino. And that, of course, necessitated, in my opinion, the evolution uh, of policing. But since Ferguson, and of course that issue boiled over uh, with respect to Ferguson as well because people were critical of the presence of armored vehicles and uh, riot gear and many people felt that inflamed the situation on the ground uh, exacerbated the problems in Ferguson. I think since Ferguson what we've seen is the outgrowth of a far more broad sort of, for lack of a better term, anti-police sort of environment that's being fostered and cultivated. And as someone who spent 19 years working as a police officer, the entirety of which working in as a street cop, 
I saw, I continue to see, the very real and tangible impact that this sort of broad um, anti-police atmosphere is having on the average street cop and affecting officer behavior. And in particular, how it affects uh, officer proactivity. Now, for those of you unfamiliar, proactive police works very different than what we think of in terms of traditional policing, responding to 911 calls where a crime has already occurred, or perhaps sometimes the crime is in progress and rarely the crime has not yet been committed. But proactive police work actually has been a bulwark of the crime reduction that we've seen uh, from the mid-1990s on up to the past year or so. And I've seen officers pulling back and not wanting to engage in that, that level of policing, that style of policing, for one basic uh, reason. They're scared. Their, their fear is that they will become the next viral video, and that they will, be, they will be in a situation, put themselves in a situation where no matter how lawful or legitimate a use of force is, that use of force situation will be filmed, put onto the internet without context, without perspective, and there'll be a rush to judgment by the public and condemnation of that officer's uh, behavior. And perhaps that officer may find himself or herself the subject of the latest political prosecution. And they'll see their their lives and livelihood jeopardized. So they're just not doing that. They'll respond to calls, they'll do what they're morally obligated to do as a police officer, but they're not engaging in that same level of proactive police work. And what's particularly troubling about that is the people that suffer the most aren't the cops. It's every one of you out there, every law-abiding citizen who just wants to go about their, their lives, uh, working hard, trying to get an education, trying not to become the next victim of, of a senseless crime. And sadly, invariably, it's folks like that who become the victims of crime as crime rates rise. Let me just say that I think we're dealing right now with the crisis in morale among police officers throughout the nation. And we're also dealing with a crisis in recruiting and retention among police departments throughout the nation. And it's the confluence of these two phenomena that are, are creating and fostering a very tenuous atmosphere for public safety. And I think that's particularly disconcerting. It concerns me, it should concern you. And uh, hopefully we can discuss it here today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, for me, I almost consider myself anything more than just a person doing a job that I believe I was tasked to do. Uh, if there is a war on police, I'm, I'm a little confused by it. I remember the first time that I was shot at as a police officer in the city of Richmond, and it's a city that I grew up in. I remember the very first time. I remember the second time that I was shot at. I remember the third time that I was shot at. But that wasn't the first time I had a gun pointed at me. The first time I had a gun pointed at me was getting off a bus in the city of Albany after visiting a young lady. And the police, four Albany police officers, pulled a gun on me and said, hey, you fit the general description of someone just committed a bank robbery. And my immediate response was, get off a bus? That was the first time my introduction to police. And I, that has stuck with me through my career. And it's been 31 years. I started in juvenile probation here in Alameda County before taking a weekend off and going to Richmond Police Department back to the city that I grew up in. I was there when we started our community policing program. I was selected to be a community policing officer, a school resource officer. This after working six years in a homicide unit and dealing with that for six straight years and solving, I'm told, 75 to 80% of my cases, which was unheard of. 
but I tie all that back to it was a community that I was raised in. It was, I wasn't a stranger to it. And when people saw me, they knew who I was. I think that is one of the most critical things that a policing agency can reach out for, getting individuals from their communities who can have an honest dialogue about some of the issues facing them as a community, us as a police organization, and, and us generally as a society. A warm police, if it does exist, I will admit here today, I think some of that's based upon our own credibility issues, especially of late. Uh, and it's not just in California, it's nationwide. And I think that police specifically need to understand that just because it happens on the East Coast does not mean you're immune from the West Coast. We are perceived by other people's actions. And there's a lot of anger. I get it from officers. I get it from the public that I speak to. I get it from my own nieces and nephews who are out on these streets. They call their uncle talking about different things all the time and asking my opinion on things. So I know that they're concerned about what's going on. I think that community policing is something that every agency should invest in, but not just put a body in it. There has to be a commitment from the individual, because that individual can also sink that department and organization if he or she is not fully engulfed in the concept, the belief, and the ideal, ideology behind the, the policing program, especially as the direction we need to go in today. Policing is, is a dangerous uh, career path because you're working in the, in the unknown all of the time. I don't know what your mindset is when I approach you. You're in complete control. I try to control a situation, but it's all dependent upon your actions. If you want to do something different, I'm, I'm reacting to you. Uh, we try to put officers in training scenarios where they have to be quick of mind, wit. I emphasize that every trainee I had over the years that the most critical weapon that he or she has is this, followed by this, in that order. The weapons on your duty belt or tools on your duty belt are just that, they're tools. I started at a time where uh, when crack cocaine hit the city of Richmond, homicide rate exploded. Richmond per capita was in the top three or four in the nation. I lost friends, people I went to junior high school and high school with because of this. Now I'm getting phone calls from friends, family members asking, did you, did you just see what happened? How can that happen? For the last 23 years, I have been tasked with investigating police officer shootings, custodial deaths. I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself someone who has just been involved and been tasked with this for 23 years. And I have seen and been involved in a lot of things. Where I also fault our profession is that we don't educate the communities into what, as to what it takes to get a successful prosecution in those type of events. 
because the bar is high. We're not allowed to second guess an officer. If his or her response was reasonable, and that's the standard that we use, if it was reasonable, then it will probably be okay. But we never share those things with the communities. I think there is there is a a lot of vagueness into what we do as a profession. And I think that's just historical. That needs to change. And hopefully with a very open conversation, an honest conversation, that all that can change. Thank you. Okay, let me take it down a little bit um, after that uplifting. Thank you. My perspective um, on what we're here to talk about today is garnered from my time now a long time ago uh, as a cop here in Berkeley and the 25 or so ensuing years I've spent representing police officers in allegations of criminal, administrative, and civil misconduct and also as my um, amateur work as a criminologist. Uh, from information I analyzed in the papers and anecdotally. In my view, the police, the current state of affairs uh, with respect to the police is they're really in an untenable situation. Um, they face uh, attacks from really both sides of a political spectrum. I'll get to that in a minute. And really, in my opinion, uh, a lot of society's ills are projected upon the police. Things like poverty, uh, the deterioration of race relations, and even crime itself. When, in a sense, uh, you know, police are really in a band-aid situation, rather at the causal stage of what might or might not be wrong with what's going on in society. Um, when I say the police are under attack from both sides of the political spectrum. I think the best illustration has to do with the police labor movement. On one side, on the right side, you have uh, people attacking pensions and benefits along with all other public organized employees. She's taking a note, I noticed on that. And uh, from the left, as recently as about a week ago, uh, there's a New York Times opinion piece calling um, for um, the removal of the police labor movement with the idea that uh, police unions were obstructing misconduct investigations. So I would say it's a rare instance where the Koch brothers and George Soros are kind of in perfect agreement uh, about what the problem is. Um, community policing, uh, we've heard a little bit of discussion about that, and I want to tell you my thoughts. Probably differs a little bit. So once again, just in terms of context, I graduated here from Cal in about 1987 and joined the Berkeley City Berkeley Police Department soon thereafter. And I tell you that because uh, there were a lot of significant events going on in the United States at that time here locally. Uh, in Berkeley, it was kind of the resurrection of the riot as um, a form of political expression. We had the People's Park anniversary riots, the battle over Barrington Halls. Anybody remember 
Anybody know what Barrington Hall is? Yeah. Okay. Were you there? I went in there. Okay. All right. I want to hold against you. You don't hold against me. It was scary. Okay. And um, nationally, of course, while I was uh, in law school and also working as a police officer with the Rodney King, not only the incident, but then the subsequent acquittals of the officers and the riots that ensued, that was 1992. And I really think that was the, at least in the post-1960s, um, challenges with the police. I think that was a watershed event. The response nationally um, among uh, police departments and in Berkeley, that I know from firsthand experience, was what was called then the community-involved policing movement. Uh, the problem, at least in the way it was implemented, uh, was it was very, very vague and ambiguous. It was an amorphous concept. And I'll tell you an anecdote um, that I recall uh, during that time. And uh, a colleague of mine got in trouble uh, because she went to a neighborhood watch meeting and she started explaining to the attendees that there was an armed robbery series going on in the area. She got back to the department and the captain of patrol, uh, you know, started yelling at her and said, um, we don't believe that crime is actually the problem. It's the perception of crime that's the problem. And that's a very difficult message uh, for working police officers to um, internalize and figure out what to do with that. It's a really very ambiguous uh, instruction, if you will. And so what our takeaway, and I don't think it's necessarily the community policing is a bad idea or that it doesn't have potential, but our takeaway is really what they're telling us to do is they don't want us to do police work. Which is okay, but don't complain about the rising crime rate at the same time. Um, two years that I was a cop in Berkeley, uh, we had the highest crime rate uh, in the state of California. Um, I think for community-involved policing or community policing to be effective, it just has to be very um, carefully explained and implemented, otherwise it really devolves into a, a kind of Orwellian doublespeak. Orwell's a cop, by the way. I don't know if anybody knew that. In India, with the provincial police department. Um, I have a little bit of a different take on the officer safety aspect of this discussion, and I was never a, a great tactical police officer by any stretch of imagination. And so what I'm going to talk about is what that means in terms of the safety of officers' careers and even freedom. I heard somebody else on the panel mention political prosecutions, and to me, my job is more than anything else, is making sure that society and all the uh, forms of society and all the forms of the government adhere to the same rules for police officers as they do the citizenry at large. And that means due process and the Constitution should apply to cops just like everybody else. In my mind, in my opinion, there are far too many prosecutions, job actions, lawsuits that are 
an outgrowth of politics uh, rather than the actual objective facts of what happened in the case. I think it's okay. In fact, it's laudable for the public to expect perfection from police officers. It, you know, and since cops are human, it's probably not an achievable goal, but I think it's, it's fair to shoot for that. In my mind, the uh, most acceptable number of officer-involved shootings and people dying at the hands of the police is zero. That should be the goal. But if we're going to expect that and require that, I think the answer is uh, a level of training that we haven't seen thus far. And I don't say this in the least bit sarcastically. I think that police officers in this day and age should be trained you know, on the level of special forces operators in terms of their handling of weapons and firearms. They should be martial artists. And they should be trained as counselors for people with mental health problems, uh, for people uh, who are having drug abuse problems. So that's uh, my perhaps um, overly optimistic view of the situation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for being here today, and thank you, Mr. Walker, for inviting me. Thank you to the Federalist Society and to Berkeley Law School. This is an extraordinary honor for me. I've never spoken here before, so this is a real treat. Um, for those of you who didn't have the perspective that we on the panel did of the opening protest, people held up names of uh, individuals who've been killed by the cops in the last couple of years. Tamir, I saw Tamir Rice, I saw Freddie Gray. Uh, and, and many others. And it is of course the case that every police shooting of an innocent, unarmed civilian is a stomach-churning tragedy. And as Mr. Stern rightly says, the police need better tactical training. They're desperate to have it. I know police officers in Chicago who pay for their own training in making those excruciating split-second shoot-don't-shoot decisions. As an aside, I would say that the current mania uh, advocated by the uh, President Obama's Justice Department for implicit bias training is a sad waste of resources. What officers need is, is tactical training. They also need training in courtesy and respect. Too often, officers developed hardened, uh, stubborn, officious attitudes in dealing with the public that is extraordinarily off-putting. And I would also add that given the history of race and policing in this country and the unquestionable involvement of the police in maintaining this country's betrayal of its core principles, in maintaining slavery, in maintaining Jim Crow segregation, the history of police brutality. It is also the case that every police shooting of a black American is particularly and understandably fraught. But I would submit that there is no government agency more dedicated to the proposition that black lives matter than the police. There's tens of thousands of minority males who are alive today 
who would have been dead had homicide levels remained at their early 1990s levels. We've experienced a 50% drop in felony crime since the early 1990s, thanks to what Mr. Erickson referred to as proactive policing, and thanks to the data-driven policing revolution that began in New York City in the early 1990s and spread nationwide. Uh, proactive policing is things like pedestrian stops, the, the Terry stop, uh, officers getting out of their cars to question somebody hanging out on a known drug corner at 1 a.m. who appears to be hitching up his waistband as if he has a gun. And it's also, crucially, what's known as broken windows policing or public order enforcement. Uh, this is if officers see a group of teens hanging out on a corner, acting disorderly, trying to respond to that outbreak of public disorder. Why are they doing that? Because people in high crime neighborhoods beg them to do so. I frequently attend police community meetings in central Harlem, South Chicago, the South Bronx, central Brooklyn. I have never been to a police community meeting in a high crime area where I don't hear some variant of the following requests. You arrest the dealers on the corner and they're back the next day. Why can't you keep them off the streets? There's kids hanging out in my lobby, smoking weed and trespassing. I'm scared to come down and get my mail. I spoke to a cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx, Mrs. Sweeper who said to me, police Jesus, send more police. The only time she felt safe to go into her building lobby was when the police were there, because otherwise it was colonized by trespassing kids selling drugs. Now the whole concept of broken windows policing is very contested today. People like Bernard Harcourt at Columbia Law School, previously at Chicago, argues that public order enforcement is a merely an oppression of poor minority citizens. But again, we've, we've heard several people on the panel invoke the double blind that officers find themselves in. They cannot respond to those heartfelt requests for public assistance and for some semblance of the feeling of safety without generating the arrest stop and, and misdemeanor enforcement data that will be used against them in the next racial profiling lawsuit brought by the ACLU or indeed possibly by, by the Justice Department. Now, to answer the question, is there a war on cops, I would like to turn that around and and, and question the Black Lives Matter narrative, is there a police war on blacks? And I, I don't think that's a exaggeration uh, or an inaccurate summation of what the narrative is that we've been living with for the last two and a half years post-Ferguson. 
Uh, I think there is a perception that we are living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of blacks. And I would argue that that narrative is completely false. It's media-driven. It is an epiphenomenon of decisions made by the media that is not accurate. Let's look at Chicago. Mr. Erickson referred to the backing off of proactive policing that's, that's going on in these last two years of officers being unwilling to get out of their car at 1 a.m. and make that police stop or being unwilling to what the Baltimore, uh, the Justice Department referred to in its recent report on the Baltimore Police Department, clearing the corners. Uh, Chicago now is, is experiencing a bloodbath of horrific dimensions. So far this year, 3,000 people have been shot. Now, if you believe the Black Lives Matter narrative, you would think that a large percentage of those shootings were committed by cops. Well, the cops have shot 17 people in Chicago this year, the vast majority of those armed and dangerous. That's 0.6% of all shootings. For every 10 gun assaults on officers, officers commit one fatal police shooting. Last year, according to the Washington Post database of, of fatal police shootings, there were about a little under a thousand people killed by the cops. 26% of those were black and 50% of those victims were white. Among the white victims was a guy in, a 50-year-old man in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who had been called, uh, the police were called to his home for a domestic violence uh, allegation. And he ran at the officers with a spoon. Now, had he been black, I think we probably would have heard his name. Nobody knows his name. If the media had chosen to focus on those 50% of shootings, uh, fatal shootings that are of white, we would think that there was an epidemic of police shootings of white people. The 26% number is in fact higher than the percentage of blacks in the population, which is 13%. But I would submit that that's an improper benchmark for measuring police activity. In the 75 largest counties in the U.S., according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the statistical arm of the Justice Department, uh, and those 75 largest counties contain the vast majority of the U.S. population. Blacks are 15% of the population in those counties, but they commit two-thirds of all violent crime. That's homicides, aggravated assaults, and robberies. The police don't wish that reality. It's simply the reality they're faced with. And it's officers' encounters with armed and resisting suspects that is going to most predict their own use of force. Now, obviously, as Mr. Stern said, the proper number of police shootings is zero, and the proper number of shootings of police officers is zero. And we need to make sure 
that those stomach-churning shootings of civilians, whether white or black or Hispanic or Asian, never occur. But right now, we are seeing a rise in crime in this country. Last year, in the 56 largest cities, homicides rose 17%. That's nearly an unprecedented one-year increase. And in cities with large black populations, the homicide increase rose anywhere from 54% in Washington, D.C. to a whopping 90% in Cleveland. The vast majority of those victims have been black. I would say, let us remember the people who the police shot without justification, and we've had some very bad police shootings in the last two years. The Laquan McDonald shooting was abysmal. The cover-up was abysmal. The Walter Scott shooting, unthinkable. But I wish that the world knew the names of the children who have been killed in the last two years thanks to police backing off of proactive policing the same way that the world knows the name of the thug Michael Brown. Because the police are trying to save those black lives and under this present false narrative when they're backing off, it is black children's lives, the elderly who are being killed, and that should concern us as well. Thank you for your attention. Thank you to the panelists for their comments. Uh, we really do want to open up to audience questions, but first, if there are any brief comments uh, from the panelists in response to uh, anything that uh, your co-panelists have stated. If not, we'll, uh, we'll open up to the audience. All right, let's start taking questions. Yes, sir. I'd like to address it to the last speaker. In the beginning of your remarks, you were essentially asking us in the audience to appreciate the complexity of police work, the uh, uh, broken window ideas, the stop and frisk ideas that you say uh, can be helpful, and, we, and, and that essentially you're asking us to look at the police work in the context of social problems and be more understanding. At the same time, at the end of your remarks, you were making comments about Black Lives Matter, people attacking the police, and there not being quite a legitimacy to that, because actually, police shootings involve white people, black people, mistaken police shooting. The implication being that the uh, inherent racism within police departments, which I would guess is pretty considerable, is not really an issue to be addressed. And uh, it, that, so you want us to look at one side and not the other. And I, being a white middle class guy, uh, haven't experienced very much of that, but I've seen it personally and up front when I was mugged in the city of Albany. Uh, and uh, the police came in response, and I had a description of the car, the license plate, the description of the two people. They proceeded to put me in their car and take me over to, these were two young black guys uh, who mugged me, to put me in the car and take me over to stop two middle class guys in a, in a, in a car that was 100 degrees away from the one that I had described. And aggressively, uh, uh, assert their authority towards these guys. 
It was ridiculous. It was idiotic. It was based only in racism, as far as I can tell. So that's one comment. We have to just give it to one comment so we can have okay. as much uh, participation as possible. Well, I, I take it you're asking me to address what you claim is the inherent racism of police departments. And I can't speak to your uh, story. It sounds bizarre. Um, I, I don't understand why they, if you were saying those aren't the two guys, why, why they took them there. I, I, I can't comment on that, and I don't know what the situation was at the training back in Albany. I would say that the effort to show statistically your uh, claim that there's inherent racism in police departments simply does not uh, earn an F in a, a freshman statistics course. What is inevitably offered up as proof of the alleged inherent racism of the police department is uh, police data, activity data, uh, that is measured again against a population benchmark. So, for instance, in New York City, uh, we had a trilogy of lawsuits against the New York Police Department, against the stop, question, and frisk practice of the cops. And the data that was the core of the suit was based on the following uh, statistics. In New York City, uh, blacks are 23% of the population, but they were 53% of all of the Terry stops made by the New York Police Department. Whites are about 34% of the population. They were about 11% of all the stops made by the cops. And so you look at those disparities and you think, okay, that looks like prima facie uh, evidence of police bias. But again, I would say population ratios are not the relevant benchmark. What matters is what are the crime rates. And according to the victims of and witnesses to crime in New York City, in their police reports, though blacks are 23% of the population, they commit over three quarters of all shootings, 70% of all robberies, and 66% of all violent crime. When you add Hispanic shootings to black shootings, you account for 98% of all shootings in New York City. Again, this is not the police, the racist police who are coming up with these numbers. This is what the, the victims of and witnesses of shootings are reporting. Whites are 34% of the population. They commit less than 2% of all shootings. That means that virtually every time the police are called out on a shots fired call, they're being called to a minority neighborhood on behalf of a minority victim of violence. They don't wish that. I mean, they hope against hope that for once they'll get a description of a white shooting suspect. It almost never happens. Uh, in my experience, the cops, I'm there are racist cops out there, but the Justice Department recently came out with the study of the, of the Philadelphia Police Department that found that blacks and Hispanic police officers were 3.3 times more likely to shoot unarmed black suspects under what's known as threat misperception, that is thinking that that unarmed suspect had a gun, than white officers. So 
A bunch of memes that we have about the police, I think, are not justified by the by the data. The gentleman in the middle of the room. Um, I just want to address a kind of a question and elicit a response from uh, the other members of the panel, in particular Mr. Jackson and Mr. Rainey, to this idea that um, black people commit the majority of the crimes. Um, police, in particular, white officers, are the only saving grace that these black communities have, per se, but could you guys, that's, that's a, kind of a drastic characterization of, of what was just said, but, you know, as a young African-American man who realistically has to live in fear, someone sitting up on stage and saying that, you know, black people are the problem, essentially, can you please um, respond to, to the, the discussion that we just had, and, because uh, um, I felt like some remarks did resonate with me, and I felt that there were productive solutions being put forth. On the other hand, I felt like there was kind of a caricature of inner city black communities being put forth that uh, I did not appreciate. I'll let uh, Mr. Yeah. Mary Stern go first, and I will follow up with that. And then I'll the chief Look, here's the deal, and um, I can titrate this from, you know, it's been one of the uh, common points. Sometimes it's lost from all the people on the panel. No one's saying racism doesn't exist in the United States. I mean, I learned more about race and race problems and economic disparity as a cop, uh, you know, certainly any other time in my life. I mean, you know, I live a uh, middle class or upper middle class existence now. In some sense, I'm going to have to deal with it. When you're a cop, nothing is more clear to you than on some level how fair, unfair America is. I mean, it, it's screaming out to you every day. My limited point about that was, in, in some ways, it does harken back to the statistics that Ms. McDonald cited, is that it's not the police that are creating, you know, those societal issues, you know, at, at the beginning of the problem, you know, back in the communities and all the other things that are potentially causing it. But, you know, I think that, at least in my experience as a, a cop and, and now doing what I do now, and like I said, being an amateur criminologist, is that the stats are probably accurate on the back end in terms of crime. And when I looked at them recently, the idea was you're taking away all drug crimes, you know, because I think there's a, a very valid argument, discussion about uh, negating anything that has to do with the war on drugs, but just looking at, you know, what are the race of the suspect described when somebody calls 911 when something just happened. Um, the challenge is huge, and it's what you do with that, and I would submit to everybody in the room, everybody in the panel, everybody in the audience, that those kind of injustices have to be addressed up front rather than, you know, at the causal level, rather than downstream when, you know, the cops are doing what you know, they think they're paid for is, you know, to address crime. Uh, did I say something bad, Daryl? No, and you know, let me preface that. I've known Mr. Stern here for over 25 years, and I have the most highest respect for him and his office, uh, professionals, and as, as individuals. Now, directly to your point. As an African-American male growing up in Richmond and still living in Richmond, the 
Is there racism in, 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 in law enforcement? Yes, there absolutely is. I remember when I was first, uh, when I was hired by Richard Police Department back in 1987, they were under consent decree. After two horrific uh, homicides, Roman Guillory, I believe, are the two individuals that were killed in the city of Richmond, and the police department was predominantly white, and a predominantly, at that time, predominantly black population. Ordered to hire uh, a staff, police officers that more fairly represent the social makeup of your city. Gerald Jackson was one of those hired. When I was asked to go to different uh, bureaus within the Richmond Police Department, first one being ADNET, they wanted to, they wanted they took me out on patrol after two and a half years. Gerald, we need you to go out and try to find qualified people of color. African Americans, Hispanics, bringing to the police department. I did just that to the point I was told to stop. There's too many. You can let it go now. And then when I was asked to go to investigations, I spent six months in robbery assault, doing DV, bank robbery. Then they told me, Congratulations, we have some good news, some bad news for you. The good news, we're going to take you out of robbery assault. Bad news is you're going to homicide and you're on call effective tonight. And it was Halloween. I got my first homicide Halloween night. When a particular sergeant who was white found out that I was being transferred to homicide, he left. And he had been in homicide almost his entire 25-year career. But he left because of me. I have also personally witnessed, and you have too, and his audience of texts that have come out of late that, that are racist in nature. Uh, but not just attacking African Americans, gay, lesbians, so on and so forth. So for anyone to sit up and say uh, that there, there's racism does not exist in law enforcement, they have no, uh, to me, you've just lost credibility in the community. That's a lie. It does exist. I will say this. In the little more than 31 years that I have been in this profession. I have worked with a lot of men and women of all cultures, races, genders, uh, gay or lesbian, those that have let themselves be known, and I've worked with some damn good people over the years who truly care about their jobs and care about the oath that they took at whatever point in time in their careers. Uh, do I feel safe walking through my community? I always have and I always will. There's a generational difference now where it's not so much, my concern is not with the guys that are uh, in their late 20s, early 30s, it's the young ones. Because that moral compass, for whatever reason, whether it be economics, whether it be uh, household makeup, mom out there, dad out there, whatever it may be, is, is different than, what I, than how I was raised. Um, so there are different factors that come into play now. That, that were different then. For all intents and purposes, my family, my mother and father, uh, you didn't live in the projects for men in Richmond, uh, were middle class people. You know, I didn't know, we didn't, we didn't have to really struggle for anything. Uh, you know, when the Atari came out, we had an Atari. You know, but we also had to go out and get the, the welfare cheese, too. The block of cheese that would be given out. 
And I don't say that to be bragging. No, just, that's my reality. That's my life. So I don't deal much with numbers. I'm never going to be a numbers person because I also understand, and I don't want to say it in a derogatory way, but you get whatever you put in is what you get out. And there's a term for that. And I'm sure that you all are aware of. So I don't deal with numbers. I deal with my realities and my personal experiences, period. Uh, Chief? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I guess, uh, I mean, I do deal with numbers. Um, data is very, very important to me as a chief executive, especially when it comes to crafting public policy. I think, however, some of the things that have been said is an oversimplification as far as what leads to violence and what is committed by crimes. And in my 37 years of experience, the violence that's being talked about today is usually predicated around drugs. And uh, period, plain and simple, it's all about drugs. And, uh, and it is concentrated around uh, poverty. And unfortunately, the majority of people in this country who are in impoverished conditions are people of color. Therefore, we, uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s on the south side of Chicago, we are the majority of the ones who are impacted by that crime. And it's not that we, uh, in African-American communities or Hispanic communities, don't want aggressive proactive policing. We want good policing. We want the same level uh, of policing as in white middle class communities. And I just, uh, for me, if a 12 year old that was playing with a toy gun was shot in a park in an upper white middle class community, the outrage would be just unprecedented. And that's Tamir Rice. So I totally, totally disagree. Uh, is there a level of fear amongst the police? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, just uh, guns everywhere. That's, that's part of the fabric of our society. You know, when I started, when I spoke, I gave out some dates, March 5th, 1770, the Boston Massacre. The visible presence of our government was the British. And they were charged with uh, keeping law and order. And uh, the citizens didn't feel that they were legitimate, and they attacked them. And the, the military, uh, the soldiers, they shot and killed five of them, wounded uh, five others, and they were prosecuted. And one of our presidents defended them, and they were found not guilty. April 12, 1861, the bombardment of Fort Sumner, where South Carolina declared his in, their independence from the United States. And they bombed this fort uh, uh, with the Union soldiers in the submission. Um, April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. You know, and these are just three incidents, and I named them because the Boston Massacre, those people were considered patriots. Um, the Southern soldiers of the Confederate who bombed, uh, bombarded Fort Sumner's they were allowed, even after the war concluded, in any other place, they would be considered traitors to continuously fly that flag to just recently. Timothy McVeigh, although put to death, killed 165 people, eight law enforcement officers. Uh, he targeted that federal uh, uh, 
building because again, all of these things symbolize our government. Okay? The uniform presence of law enforcement officers are the most visible presence of our government. And you have Dallas and Baton Rouge today. Once the people start believing that the police are not exercising their power and authority in a legitimate, fair way, you, they will begin to revolt and rise up. And the only difference that I see some of the stuff that's going on today that's really causing a huge cry is you have now soldiers, uh, former soldiers in Dallas and definitely uh, in Dallas and this guy in Baton Rouge dressed up. What's the difference between him and Timothy McVeigh? You know, they are attacking our way of life, our government. They don't agree with it. They don't feel it's legitimate. Finally, I want to get back to, again, Pill's original principles. The people are the police. We police are the people. And once we start thinking that we are the thin blue line that's stopping the barbarian horde at the gate, so every American police riot usually starts with the police, police action. And so for me, I totally disagree with the notion that bias-based policing training uh, is a waste because it gets right at the, the very, very heart of what African-American, Hispanic people who are the poor people who are experiencing bad policing are complaining about talking past each other. It goes to the respect. They feel that they're being disrespected. They feel that they're not being treated equally as if somebody from uh, another side of town and putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and, under, and having an empathetic understanding of what a person is feeling, especially when they're poor and all they got left is their dignity and respect. And then I come and impose or a middle class standard value on them or have no understanding of that community. Uh, uh, even if, with the stop and frisk and the data that's being talked about, I'm right 40% of the time and I find a gun or some drugs. Well, I'm right 60% of the time. It's a family rate in my upbringing. 60, 60% you failed. Because the people who walk away that you didn't find anything on, they understand it's a pretextual stop and all you wanted to do is search them. And they're being humiliated out in public. So data's important, numbers are important, uh, the training is important, all of, all of this stuff that's talked about is important. But when it comes to all of these incidents that I've seen, just based on my uh, training, education, and experience, each one starts with either something's wrong with the policy and procedures, or the officers haven't been trained to the policy procedures, but most of the officers that I end up giving major discipline to or terminating is because of poor supervision and leadership. Can I just respond to Mr. Rainey's um, very insightful comments? He's absolutely right that officers need training in dealing with civilians and that if people feel disrespected, that is a massive problem. And, and they 
officers get hardened, they get, they get chips on their shoulder, and that they need constant reinforcement about talking to people courteously and listening. But I would argue that that is not what implicit bias training is. Implicit bias training is based on the notion that we are living through an epidemic of biased police shootings of blacks. Four studies this year alone have come out showing that what we think we know about police shootings from the Black Lives Matter movement is wrong. Roland Fryer, an economist at Harvard who happens to be black, I don't think that's relevant, but in our current hyper-racialized environment, I guess that's something to be said, uh, did a set of regression analyses that found that actually not only was there no evidence of bias in police shootings, but cops were more likely to shoot whites than blacks. That is not what we've been led to understand. Lois James at the Washington State University has done the most sophisticated set of simulator shoot-don't-shoot shoot decisions, found that, again, officers were more likely to shoot armed white suspects than armed black suspects and took longer to decide to shoot an armed black suspect than an armed white suspect. The Center for Bias and Equity in Policing also found that white felons were disadvantaged when it came to officer use of force compared to blacks. So while I believe in training and, and attitude training, I just, I have to push back on the notion that we, that the core problem in policing today is that cops are shooting blacks out of racial bias, that the evidence does not show that. And that's not what I'm advocating, and that's what you're saying. And as far as you talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, and what I know about their platform, Campaign Zero, I totally support. I wrote it down here. A world where police don't kill people by limiting police intervention, improving community relations, and ensuring accountability. I support that. As a police chief, I sleep two or three, two or three hours first because my phone is going to ring about something. And the last thing I wanted to ring off that one of my officers has shot somebody. Absolutely. And as far again, as far as what my officers get in trouble for, it's that extra comment. Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly but, what I'm but saying. That's what, what you're talking, uh, again, it begins with bias-based policing training. Because what I, as an African American growing up in my neighborhood, I feel was if somebody disrespect disrespecting me is going to be totally different than what you think. The gentleman in the middle of the room had a question in the yard. Uh, yes, sir. So you mentioned those stats. I also noticed that you failed to recognize that white people account for more of the nation's population than blacks do. So you don't actually acknowledge the proportion at which blacks are killed by whites. And I just looked up the, um, the article you were talking about by Rowan Fryer, and it reflects just that very thing. Um, so black people are 13% of the nation's population, and yet we're still killed um, at an almost comparable rate to white people. So how would you address that? 
Well, I, I don't know why you say they're killed at the same rate. As I said in the beginning, yes, um, blacks are 13% of the population and 26% of the people shot by the police last year were black. So that is a disproportion. But I would argue that population, policing is not driven by population ratios. If you go to a, what's known now as CompStat meetings, term that came out of New York City, these high, high pressure, intense police meetings where precinct commanders are grilled about crime patterns in their, in their jurisdiction, they don't talk about race. They talk about where's the burglary pattern, where's the robbery pattern, who's being victimized, and they make deployment decisions based on that. They look at crime, not race, and crime is not evenly distributed to the population. In answer to this man's question about the statistics, go, go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. I think it's a problem. Every year, over 6,000 blacks are murdered. That's more than all white and Hispanic murder victims combined. That's a problem. Even though blacks are only 13% of the population, blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. That's a problem. And the reason for that is that if you look, again, it's the federal Justice Department numbers, or read an article by Anthony Braga, blacks commit homicide at eight times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. So when you look at policing, you have to understand what the reality of crime is, because the police today are data-driven, and they go where crime is happening in order to save lives. Sir, unfortunately, we've got time for a follow-up as we're running out of time here. Uh, Panels, do you have any just final remarks you'd like to uh, throw in before we conclude? I know the students have to go to their next classes, but uh, yes, Chief. Uh, question was, uh, starting down there, you know, in a couple of sure, thank you for having me, and I'll say for the record, uh, despite being a member of the bar, this is uh, more time than I spent in a law school lecture hall than uh, my three and a half years. <laughs> Probably got a better grade too, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Obviously, and I think that oftentimes what we see are the statistics aren't necessarily matching perception among the public, and that's a problem. Um, somebody mentioned empathy. I think the chief did, and it's important for police officers to employ empathy and understanding the communities that they serve. But I would submit that it's also important that the public attempts to employ some empathy toward law enforcement, to understand what the police officers have to deal with day in and day out. It's not to excuse unjustifiable behavior, but understand what the police officers, try to understand what that officer's dealt with that day. If he or she may have just come from a child drowning, and now he's just going to a call, or he, she's going to a call where they're getting yelled at by God, who knows who. And then they're going to deal with your situation. Maybe they're coming off as gruff. And it's not right, but try to employ some sense of empathy toward the officers as well. I think if we would share in that empathy, we could, we could maybe balance out the, uh, the perception versus statistic disparity. Thank you. I want to say thank you very much. It's, it's been a, a 
a great opportunity to come here and speak to you to share a little bit about uh, the world as we see it. Um, there are issues, there are concerns. I think we'll have nothing else from this uh, lively discussion. Uh, there are some differences of opinions and perceptions, uh, but it's important that we all can come to the table and discuss those differences uh, and at least come to an understanding. Uh, that's the only way we're going to grow and we're going to change. And if nothing else, that's the hope that I have for us in general, that we grow and change. Okay, just very good. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful audience and I appreciate the respect. And it's been an honor to be on a panel with so many people with deep understanding of the problems of policing, community relations, and I hope that we can all work our way out of this present difficult moment and all lives do matter, and especially black lives do matter, and the police are dedicated to that proposition. And I also would like to thank uh, the Fellow Society for uh, inviting me. These are very, very complex issues. There are no simple answers. Um, when you start talking about war, you declare war on people, and the war on drugs impacted black and brown communities uh, very disproportionately, which has led to some of this violence, probably a lot of this violence, in my opinion, when you remove men uh, from communities in large number, it has an impact. Men matter in their children's lives. Um, um, again, this this is very, very, very complex. And for me, the Black Lives Matter movement, although I don't agree with everything that they say, it represents not that white lives don't matter, not that blue lives don't matter. It's we are the canary in the mine. That's it. And if we matter, then everybody matters. And finally. Your police need your support. You know, I tell my officers all the time, uh, you're not going to be perfect. And that's what I come whenever I go to any group. These, these men and women are not perfect. Okay? They come from next door neighbors, family members. They're going to make a mistake. And when they make a mistake, I'm not going to stand behind them. I'm going to stand in front of them. I will stand in front of them because, again, most of the officers that I've had to issue major discipline to, you trace back to their training, policy and procedures, or whatever, it's a failure of supervision and leadership. Thank you. On behalf of the whole Berkeley community, thank you so much to our panelists for joining us today. It was a very important conversation.